opening and closing theme is by Midnight Syndicate. For more dark instrumental music like it, visit www.midnightsyndicate.com or find them on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or Alexa. True crime stories are discussed in this podcast, which may contain graphic and disturbing content. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Freshly Brewed Noir. I'm Jennifer. And I'm Summer. And this is episode 20, Larry Eiler. AKA the Interstate Killer and the Highway Killer. Oh, that's an alias. Yes, he had a couple. Okay. He's awful, so be prepared. I've never heard of this guy. I'm interested to see... You know what happens with this. And then you didn't have time to read the show notes because we were at an event last night. It's been a very busy week. Yes. <laughs> Summer and I were celebrating a baby shower. There was a lot of gin involved. So today I am recovering. I don't know about Summer. <laughs> Maybe she's in recovery too, but it was lit. It was lit. Well, Jennifer was part of the planning of this event too. So I think she feels it a lot more than I do because you did a bunch of the set up and it looked great. It was the swankiest baby shower I've ever been to. It was amazing. Thank you. I'm glad it was up to standard. The bar has been set so high. I don't know if I can attend another baby shower that's not on a rooftop with a DJ. Uh, yeah, I've <laughs> never been to drinks. <laughs> There were signature drinks. It was so cute. It was really adorable. It was a lot of fun. My sister is expecting, so... In February, right? Yes. Yes. I'll be an auntie. Auntie Jen Jen. It's a big moment for all of us. We're excited. I'm excited. I feel like you're having a baby. I'm not. But the good <laughs> thing is, I can always give the baby back to the parents. It's the fun stuff. I can do the fun stuff, yes. And she'll have a little secondary auntie, Auntie Summer. You love babies anyway, <laughs> I so I know so the baby will be in good hands. <laughs> Babies are so great. While we are in recovery, we are going to take you down this dark path. <laughs> I'm ready, but I just want to warn our listeners that there are a lot of trigger warnings in this one. Murder, rape, torture. There is a brief mention of the murder of an animal. So just be prepared. If this is not your thing, don't listen. We've warned you. This is a true crime podcast and we're getting into it. <laughs> yes. And just to let everyone know, it doesn't seem like we're letting up with the heavy episodes. I know we're not. Starting in November, October was such a light kind of fun month for us with Halloween. and But yeah, November and December are very dark and heavy. So oh, yeah. And we bring in the new year with January and February too. I think we stick with the serial killers. Yeah. So we're giving you a lot of serial killer episodes this next month and then the past couple months. So hope you're here for it. And maybe this is a story you haven't heard before. So we'll all be learning together. Yeah. And it's kind of related to the story we just did about Herb Baumeister, who was killing men and dumping their bodies along the interstate. It's around the same time, but there's obviously a different MO with this guy. And we'll get into that. I think you mentioned it in the previous episode where there's like dismembering happening. Yes. Very different, I think, from Baumeister, who would bring men back to his place and strangle them after sex. And that was his MO. You'll see that Larry Eiler has a very different, more brutal MO. Yes. All right. I'm I'm ready, I think. Time. Okay. Larry Eiler is believed to have murdered a minimum of 21 young men and teenage boys between 1982 and 1984 in several Midwestern states. He usually targeted boys or young men that were hitchhiking, or he would target sex workers. Eiler would offer them drinks and sedatives. The victims were unaware of the sedatives they were taking, since Eiler would tell them it was just good pills for pain or something else. Yeah, that's why we don't take pills from strangers. <laughs> don't. Don't do that. It's probably not Tylenol. Don't trust them. Right. But he was obviously taking people who were trusting or were in a bad place of life. He knew who to target, as these serial killers do. Right. He would then take his victims to another location and tie them up. There he would brutally torture and kill them as a way to, in his mind, alleviate his rage related to the relationship with his lover, John Dobrovolsky, who was married with three children. We will discuss his early life relationships, crimes, the arrests, trials, capture, and posthumous confession to his killings or being involved in the killings of 21 young men and boys. And these are just the known ones. Yes. There is one thing I read that said they believe he killed upwards of 50. Wow. Yeah. But he only confessed to 21. In a two-year time span? The 21 were during two years. Oh. God. So maybe it's before that and out. I mean, it's like almost one a month. Sometimes he would kill multiple in a month. Oh, gosh. Okay. 
On December 25, 1952, in Crawfordsville, Indiana, Larry Eiler was born. He was the youngest of four children born to George Howard Eiler and Shirley Phyllis Kennedy. Eiler's father was an alcoholic who physically and emotionally abused his wife and children. They separated when Eiler was just two years old. Eiler and his younger sister, Teresa, were placed in the care of the two older siblings or babysitters, or foster care throughout their younger years. His mother struggled to support the kids and worked two to three jobs to be able to keep her kids fed. When the two younger children were in foster care, Isla remembers his mother frequently visiting them and stated that it actually brought them closer together as a family. So his mother was trying her best. Yeah, it doesn't sound like he had any abuse from his mother, and he also states that he was very close to his mother and his younger sis- youngest of the three sisters, Teresa. Okay. So Eiler's mother would go on to remarry in 1957, but they divorced just a year later. In 1960, she married her third husband, but they would end up divorcing in four years. She married for a fourth time in 1972. Well, she loved love. Yeah, yeah. You know, fourth time's a charm. Isn't that what they say? Maybe. <laughs> no. Unfortunately, Eiler and his siblings continued to suffer abuse from two of their stepfathers during this time, and one of them would reportedly dunk Eiler's head under scalding water as a way of disciplining him. Oh my god, why would he do that? A couple of his stepfathers were alcoholics and abusive when they would drink, and his father was an alcoholic as well. He suffered abuse from the majority of the men in his life. Wow. He had an abusive childhood, sounds like. He had an awful childhood. Did his mom know about the abuse? It sounds like she was so busy working and trying to support these kids. She really wasn't around. So she probably wasn't aware. No. And he never says anything that his mother is at fault. It sounds like he was very close to his mother and she was trying to do the best she could, but she was just making the wrong choices. In men. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Mm-hmm. hard. And because she didn't have a lot of money and had to work all those jobs, she wasn't around to see what was happening that much with the kids. Yeah. Around the age of nine or 10 years old, the emotional and physical abuse Eiler had endured was taking its toll and causing him to act out. So his mother ended up placing him in a home for unruly boys. Eiler said that the experience was devastating to him and he would cry to his mother to let him come home, promising to do better. When he returned, she took him in for a psychological evaluation. The test did not show any issues with intelligence, but it did show that he was plagued by insecurity and fear of abandonment and separation. What do you think the experts told her to do? Uh, be with her son? Right. That would make sense, right? Spend more time with him or try and find ways he could be around people more, family. Yes. But that's not what they did. What did they do? They told her to send him away to a boy's home in Fort Wayne, Indiana. What? And he was there for six months. Why? I don't know. What was the logic? I don't know. The I doctors feel... told her to do Yes, this? the doctors told her to do that. They said he suffers from fear of separation and abandonment, so send him away for six months to an all-boys home. They said that there's nothing psychologically wrong with him. He just, you know, has separation anxiety. Okay. Yeah. Sage advice there from these doctors. That is sending some mixed signals. I know. I feel really bad for young Eiler. Yeah, I'm sure he was confused. (sighs) Like, why are y'all sending me away? Yeah. This is one of the ones where I think he was a serial killer created by his environment and society. I don't know that he was necessarily born one. Yeah. We can talk more about that later and see what you think after you hear everything. Oh, God. Because, you know, I believe that Israel Keys was born a serial killer. He was born an awful human. But Eiler, it sounds like he was just a kid who had a very bad time in life and it created a serial killer. Yeah, it kind of warped his mind. Yeah. No excuse for what he did later, though. So throughout his younger school years, Eiler was constantly bullied by other children due to being from a poor family and because of his mother's divorces. His sister, Teresa, would often stick up for him when she saw that he was being bullied. Eiler's teachers didn't seem to notice that anything was too alarming with him since they only reported that he had very few friends and was quiet, but that he had been a likable student. So no urinating on desks like Like (laughs) Valmeister. No, none of that. That's good. It's a good sign. But yeah. it sounds like he was trying to be like a normal kid. Right. He was just shy and he was being bullied. He didn't have a good home life and then he didn't have a good time at school either. Yeah. So I'm sure he's kind of lost. It's all mixed up. Yeah. yeah. When Isla reached puberty, he discovered that he was attracted to the same sex. He was open about his sexuality to just his family and struggled heavily with feelings of self-hatred regarding his sexual orientation. And it is in the 80s. It's in the 80s. So that was a tough time for that for the LGBT community. Yes, absolutely. 
In high school, he would date girls. However, these relationships did not become physical. And he did confide during high school to a couple of close friends about his struggle to accept his sexuality. So he knew that he was attracted to the same sex, but he just felt like society didn't accept it, which at that time, it really didn't. Right. We've seen that in a couple episodes where people are just ashamed of their sexuality because of society. Baumeister was too. Yeah. And even um, Applegate. Yes. um, um, Heaven's Gate. Right. It's sad. It is. Eiler failed to graduate from high school, not due to his intelligence, but rather due to his indifference towards schooling. He did later acquire a GED. He worked at a hospital as a security guard for a short time after high school and then at a shoe store. He enrolled in college in 1974 and began a close friendship with one of the professors at Indiana State University, library science professor Robert David Little, who was 38 years old. Eiler's enrollment in college was sporadic, and in 1978, he left without a degree and moved into Professor Little's condominium with him in Terre Haute, Indiana, or Terre Haute, Oh, Terre Haute? Terre Haute. Ooh, Terre Haute. Terre Haute? (laughs) Terre Haute, Indiana. We'll go with that. The two had a platonic relationship and would frequent the gay bar scene in Indianapolis. Little was socially awkward and is described as being unattractive. I showed you a picture of him. What did you think? Professor Little. Is he attractive? Not my type. Not my type. That's a safe answer. (laughs) You know, I'm very particular. Yeah. Okay. So this was the opposite of how Eiler is described, who was known as an attractive young man in the community who loved bodybuilding and had a pleasant personality. So for the first oh, time, really? yeah, so Eiler was, and I showed you a picture of him. He worked out. He was taller in stature. He was muscular. Yeah. And, you know, he has that baby face, I guess. He definitely got a lot of attention for his physical appearance. Really? Okay. When I first saw him, he looked like a mall cop to me. I but mean, he's not your type. He's not. Yes. No, he's not my type. <laughs> But he's a lot of people's type because he got a lot of attention. I didn't like that mustache. I don't know how people dated in in the (laughs) 70s and 80s with all those mustaches. Unless it was like a cool handlebar mustache. The rest of them just creeped me out. It was a fashion trend, you know, I guess. Big fashion trend. My dad had one. I remember when he shaved it off. I was a kid and I was like, oh, he's got an upper lip. It was just odd to me. I know. Like, mustaches in themselves are their own identity. Yeah. Because he had it, you know, since I had remembered as a little kid, and then he shaved it off one day in the 80s. Well, I'm sure he doesn't regret that. He's never grown it back. (laughs) Good job, Dad. Yeah, it's just in in that decade. We get it. We get it. So, at this point, are they public? Oh, Little and Eiler? Yeah. They had a platonic relationship at first. Eiler kind of looked to him as more of a father figure. And since Little was just quieter, he was definitely attracted to men as well. So Eiler kind of became like the wingman when they would go out. So they would frequent the bars and bring people back to Little's place to have sex. Okay. So they're just, at this point, wingmen for each other. Little was not a wingman for Eiler. Little (laughs) apparently was not attractive. People were not coming up to him. He didn't have any swagger. It was Eiler that was bringing the men in. I see. Yes. Eiler brought the swagger, apparently. Can't all have it. (laughs) Okay. So for the first time in Eiler's life, he was making friends, and he ended up falling in with a leather fetish group around this time. And since Little enjoyed nude photography, Eiler would often bring men back to the condo for erotic photo sessions. Oh, okay. (laughs) So like dominatrix type stuff, huh? Yeah. Eiler was starting to enter into the sadomasochism world. I see. Okay. And it sounded like Little was open to that. He liked to watch and then photograph. It's a fetish for sure. So many described Eiler as laid back on the surface. However, those who experienced sexual encounters with him had an entirely different story to tell. He was known to turn violent in the bedroom, with several men saying that he would start shouting profanities at them while choking, bludgeoning, and even cutting their torso with a knife. And he uh, would what? And he would say things to them like he would call them a bitch or a whore, pretending they were female. What? Yes. Again, it's his struggle with his sexuality that had him pretending they were women in the bedroom. It was in his mind. There was an internal struggle. Uh, internal struggle for sure. So I'm 
I'm assuming that these people were not consenting to this aggressive behavior in no, the bedroom. No, they, they did not like the profanities, choking, bludgeoning, and cutting of the torsos. <laughs> They were like, I don't think we talked about this. Right. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. But I guess they're lucky at, at that point. They were probably like, we're Luck- not going to do this with this yeah, person anymore. Exactly. So we're just going to swipe. <laughs> swipe which way? Is it left? Swipe the goodbye way. Yes. Whatever that way is. This is the no rejection <laughs> way. Yeah. So in Terre Haute is where his first recorded assault would take place. On August 3rd, 1978, Eiler picked up a 19-year-old hitchhiker. Craig Long entered Eiler's pickup truck and Eiler propositioned him. Long attempted to leave the vehicle, but Eiler pulled out a knife and pressed it against Long's chest. Long told him that he didn't have any money. Eiler then drove to a rural field and told him that he didn't want his money and that was not what he was after. That's scary. Oh yeah. Hitchhiking (laughs) in general, it's a very scary time. I know that was big. That was big in the 70s and early 80s, yeah. Eiler ordered Long to undress, and then he handcuffed him and bound his ankles. He told Long to get into the back of the pickup truck. And I think there was either, I don't know if it was a mattress or just blankets back there, but once he got to the back of the pickup truck, obviously Long realized that he was going to be raped. He started to try to get away. While Eiler undressed, he fled. Eiler chased after him. And with his legs bound, he fled? Yes, he was able to work the bindings, like, loose a little bit so he could kind of... Oh, good for him. ...hobble away, but he was obviously not able to run that fast. And so Eiler did catch up to him and stabbed him in the chest with a knife. And it punctured his lung. He immediately knew that his lung was punctured. And so he thought, I'm not going to be able to keep running. So he dropped to the ground and pretended to be dead. Did that work? Eiler went away. He he left him? Yep. He just left him for dead. Oh, gosh. This is Mm -hmm. just like in Herb's story where, was it Tony? Was it Tony? Yes. He he, he he was strangling him and he played dead. Yeah. Yeah. We're seeing that. This is a good tactic. Play dead. Eiler fled, and when Long was sure that he was out of sight, he got up and was able to make it to a nearby home and ask them for help. But he was naked and bleeding, and so they didn't answer the door at first, but he just begged for a towel to stop his chest from bleeding. They did call the paramedics. The paramedics came, and while the paramedics were tending to Long, Eiler had driven to another home nearby, saw a deputy at the home, and gave the deputy the key to the handcuffs the young man was in. Why? He admitted to it. What? Tyler was arrested and charged with aggravated battery and ended up pleading guilty. His bond was set at $10,000, which Professor Little and his friends were able to raise the money for his release. But Eiler's lawyers offered Long a check from Professor Little that was written out for $2,500 in return for his agreeing not to press charges. Long accepted the offer because that was a lot of money back then. And we don't know Long's situation. He was hitchhiking. Maybe he just really needed money. Sure, yeah. Can't really knock him for that. We don't know what place in life he was in. So he accepted it and didn't press charges. And Eiler changed his plea to not guilty. And he was acquitted on November 13th, 1978 with a fine of only $43. And that was court costs. So he just got away with it. He got away with that one. He admitted to it and got away. (sighs) That's crazy. Yeah. Because I'm sure this doesn't get better. It gets a lot worse. After being fired from the shoe store job, Eiler got a job at a local liquor store as a clerk in Greencastle, Indiana, on Saturdays, while mainly working as a house painter in Illinois on the weekdays. Then, in August of 1981, he met an attractive 20-year-old man named John Dobrovolsky. He was married with three children and three foster children. They had shared a desire for sadomasochism and started up a relationship that would last until Eiler's capture. Eiler would bind Dobrovolsky to chairs or other parts of the home and then beat and lashed him as he shouted profanities during their sexual encounters. But Dobrovolsky was a willing participant in this. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah. So I guess it's what they like. I wish it ended here. I wish they just lived their sadomasochism lifestyle and were happy. I kind of yeah, got it out that way. Yeah, but that's not what happens. Okay. So Dobrovolsky's wife was accepting of her husband's sexual orientation and allowed Eiler to stay in their home on weekdays. Wow. This is his ideal situation, right? He was in love with Dobrovolsky. And Eiler did pay a third of the rent, and he was supposedly really good with the kids. Interesting. Neither of the men considered themselves monogamous. However, they did consider their relationship with each other a permanent one. This created conflict inside of Eiler and would cause him to seek out assurance that he was the only lover that Dobrovolsky 
Dobrovolsky had. This caused frequent arguments between the two and would sometimes result with Dobrovolsky hitting Eiler, who would not retaliate in these types of situations. So in the arguments, Dobrovolsky would hit him. And he would be submissive. Eiler would yep. be submissive. Yep. But in the bedroom, it was reversed. Exactly. In the bedroom, Dobrovolsky was the submissive and Eiler was the dominant. Okay. It's a different situation. So maybe that's just how it was. That's, that's how they were enjoying each other's company. But remember, there's still Professor Little. Oh, gosh. I forgot all about yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. So Professor Little was obviously not happy about Eiler's long-term relationship with Dobrovolsky and made it known to Eiler, which would then cause further arguments between the couple because he would bring it up to Dobrovolsky. I'm sure Little, being more intelligent than Eiler, would say things to try and come between his relationship with Dobrovolsky. And then that would cause arguments between Eiler and Dobrovolsky. Oh, he knew what he was doing. He did. He's like, let me uh, get in between these two. Right. There, there's a lot of moving parts in this. It's not I, even yeah. a triangle. <laughs> Can't even keep up. But yeah, it's, it's a lot. It is a lot. Still being able to stay rent-free with Little in Indiana during the weekends to attend his liquor store job, he handled his house painting jobs in Illinois during the weekdays while at Dobrovolsky's home, which had him commuting between the two states for several years in his Ford pickup truck, which he would later use while committing his abductions and murders in both states. In 1982 to 1984, it is known that Eiler committed a minimum of 21 murders and at least one attempted murder. Every single murder involved the restraint of his victims, and several of the victims endured degrees of sadomasochism before being stabbed and or slashed to death on their chest and abdomens. He would also use alcohol and sedatives before the binding and murdering of his victims so that they could not fight back. Additionally, several of his victims were disemboweled. Uh, <laughs> Give Jennifer a moment. Uh, <laughs> Do we go into detail about these disembowelings? There's going to be a lot of this word, so just be ready for it. Okay. Let me mentally prepare. Yeah. And at least four of his victims were dismembered after death. The bodies of his victims were left in fields close to major interstate highways, and many had their pants and underwear pulled down to their knees or ankles and were missing their shirts and wallets. Several also had on white tube socks, with at least one victim's family stating that the boy did not own this type of tube sock. And we never find out why he would put this type of sock on some of his victims, but he would do this to several of the victims. Hmm. Maybe that was some type of his fantasy or something. I don't know. Yeah. So we'll start in now 1982, and these are the victims that are known. Craig Townsend, who on October 12, 1982, was lured into Eiler's truck in Crown Point, Indiana, was 21 years old. He was drugged, horrifically beaten, and then abandoned naked and comatose in a rural field. Townsend actually survived this assault, but left the hospital before investigators could get information from him. Oh, why did he leave? Well, he could have been um, a hitchhiker that Eiler picked up and he wanted to get out of there. This time, the police were not nice to anybody in the LGBTQ community. So if he thought that he was going to be questioned by the police, he probably thought, I just better get out of here. (sighs) So he escapes. So yeah, he left the hospital, so they were never able to question him. Then on October 23rd of 1982, just 11 days later, Eiler abducted and murdered 19-year-old Stephen Crockett, his body being discovered in a cornfield in Kankakee County, Illinois, just 12 hours after having been murdered. The autopsy showed Crockett had been brutally beaten, then stabbed to death with 32 knife wounds, four being to his head. Oh. 32. That's a lot of times. Yeah. And four to the head. That's pretty brutal. He was just enraged, it sounds like. And was there a sexual assault in this one too? No. So all of these victims, they didn't find any traces of semen. So it doesn't appear that any were sexually assaulted. Okay. Just brutalized. Yes. They believe that he would feel guilty for having his sexual encounters or be mad at Dobrovolsky and take it out on these boys he was picking up or these young men he was picking up. He would take his rage out on them. I see. So it was very rage-filled. Yeah. So he'd have his sexual encounters separate. Right. And then take out his anger on these innocent victims. And and separate as in like not even with the victims. Like he may have a sexual encounter with Drobovolsky or with Little or involved with another guy. The murders were separate from his sexual encounters. Right. Yeah. Like those victims were not the same. They weren't involved with him sexually. Exactly. It's very strange. Yeah. 
Yeah. Just needed an outlet. Maybe he should have just um, gone. Got hobbies? To, uh, yeah. Maybe he could have started boxing or something. It sounds like he was a... He was a bodybuilder. Yeah. So he liked weightlifting. Stick to that. Stick to that. Yeah. yeah. Stick with your hobbies, man. Right. Well, we have several more in 1982. Actually, in the same month, this was October 30th of 1982, just a week later, 26-year-old Edgar Underkoffler went missing from Illinois. He was discovered much later on March 4th, 1983, in a field near Danville, Illinois obviously with the same types of wounds. In November of 1982, Eiler murdered 25-year-old John Johnson. His body was discovered the next month. And in this same month, Eiler also abducted a 19-year-old hitchhiker named William Lewis in Indiana. He was found stabbed to death in a field. Are these all hitchhikers, by the way? Or the major just... he does pick up a lot of hitchhikers, yes. On December nineteenth, nineteen eighty two, twenty three year old Stephen Egan went missing in Terre Haute. His body ends up being discovered close to an Indiana State Road on December twenty eighth of the same year. When investigators inspected a building close to where Egan's body was found, they discovered traces of human flesh in damaged areas of the walls. Investigators were led to believe that Egan had been suspended against the wall of this building while the murderer inflicted injuries to his body. John Pless, the coroner who performed the autopsy on Egan, revealed that there was extensive mutilation to Egan's abdomen, chest, and throat, which showed tremendous rage in the killer and even the possibility of more than one killer. Oh, so this is maybe where his lovers come into play? Maybe. So remember this case. After performing the autopsy on Egan, Dr. Pless performed another on the body of 21-year-old John Roach, who had just been found that day close to the state. Dr. Pless made a note that there were striking similarities in the injuries inflicted upon Egan and Roach. Both had multiple stab wounds to the victim's abdomens, upper chest, and throat. Plus notified the police of his findings and suspected that there may be a serial killer at large. But the police thought he was overreacting. They said, let us do our job. And by our job. What, what do you we'll know, just, doctor? What do you know we'll about? say, no, no, incorrect. What do you know about autopsies? <laughs> I know. So I'm, I'm guessing he saw a similar pattern in all these victims. And he's like, someone out here is doing this. Yeah. And he said this is too similar to not be the same person. And then law enforcement was just. So, nah. Don't worry about it. Let us do our job. <laughs> On December 30th, 22-year-old David Block disappeared from an Illinois suburb. He told his friends that he was going to visit a friend in Highwood, a nearby city. His body was later discovered by a farmer in a field near Route 173 in Illinois. So that's the end of December. Several bodies found, all with similar injuries, but they are across two different states. And nobody's putting it together yet, except for Dr. Pless. Yeah. The coroner. I guess when it's in two different states, sometimes it's kind of hard to solidify. Either this is right before like the National Crime Database was created or very close to it. So it's like different jurisdictions as well. Yes. Now we're in 1983. So with barely any break from his last murder, on January 24th, 1983, Eiler abducted and murdered 16-year-old Irvin Gibson. His 16? Is that 16, the youngest? Um, no, I think he kills a 15-year-old. Maybe two 15-year-olds, actually. His body wasn't discovered until April 15th, though. It had been left on top of a dog that had also been stabbed to death. That he stabbed <sighs> to death. Yes. <sighs> just an awful human. Yeah, why? In March and April of 1983, it is estimated that Eiler killed a minimum of five other people between the ages of 17 and 29. Gustavo Herrera was one of these young men and had been found in a similar area as that of Irvin Gibson. Herrera had also been stabbed to death. By this time, advocates in Indiana's gay community were suspicious that it was the work of a serial killer, and a gay newspaper called The Works set up an anonymous tip line and published an article about the motive of this unknown serial killer whom they suspected struggled with accepting his sexuality. So they were right on the money right yeah. there. Yes, they were. Wow. The magazine editors also were able to offer a reward of $1,500 for any information that led to the arrest and conviction of the killer. And we also need to say that this is the 80s in Indiana. Police were raiding gay bars in Illinois and Indiana and filming men going into the bars and into gay bookstores as a way to harass and embarrass them. So it's not likely that these men were going to go of their own accord to the police with tips because they were literally being harassed by them for walking into a gay bar. Law enforcement was doing Law this? Yes. What? That's unbelievable. Why? Like... Why go out of your way to do that? The 80s in Indiana. What a time. 
I was, I missed those times. I was not born in the eighties. So lucky I was in California. It was a better place. <laughs> yeah. I know Californians are Southern California. It's more accepting and progressive. And during that time, I'm sure there were still difficulties, but I don't right. think it was like that of Indiana. Yeah. And what do you do when you can't even go to law enforcement? Right. You know, you know that there is a serial killer out there. What do you do? You don't go to them. And then the serial killer keeps killing people. Then on May 9th, the body of 21-year-old Daniel Scott McNeve was discovered in a field close to Indiana State Road 39. Like most of the other victims, his jeans had been pulled down to his ankles, and there were welt marks on his wrists and ankles to indicate the likelihood that he was restrained. McNeve had suffered five knife wounds to his back. 11 to his neck, and also 11 to his abdomen, causing part of his intestines to protrude. Ugh. Oh, God. I know. Okay. Jennifer's having a rough time. I told you this was going to be rough. I, I just... It's okay. Well... That's awful. Six days after discovering McNeve's body, Indiana police held a meeting regarding the murders, which was attended by 35 detectives from each of the four jurisdictions where bodies have been discovered having similar wounds or injuries. The police concluded that the same killer was responsible, and they formed a unified task force, which included two detectives from the Indiana State Police Force, two from the Indianapolis Police, and two from each of the counties where bodies were identified as being victims of the serial killer and all information related to the previous cases plus any new information would be entered into a computerized database that was linked to the statewide police system. So now they're starting to get a clue about, okay, let's work together and try and apprehend this guy. Good. I'm glad that, you know, they finally got together kind of try to put a profile together and look for Eiler. But just three days later, Eiler murdered again. This time in Illinois, 25-year-old Richard Bruce. Bruce's body had been thrown from a bridge into a nearby creek, and it was not discovered until December 5th. Following its inception, the task force, named Central Indiana Multi-Agency Investigation Team, contacted the FBI to give them information about the killings and method of body disposal the killer was using and asked that they be contacted if any other jurisdictions had killings that matched these descriptions. Soon after, Kentucky investigators contacted the task force to report that 29-year-old Jay Reynolds had been found stabbed to death on March 22nd, and it appeared that his body had been transported from another location. A few days later, Chicago investigators contacted the task force to advise of 18-year-old Jimmy Roberts, whose body had been found in a creek on May 9th with 35 stab wounds. Both victims were linked to the database in the search for the serial killer, whom the task force had now named the highway murderer. But those are just a few of the victims that were on the highway. Right. There's many more. <sighs> on June 6th, Eiler's former lover, Thomas Henderson, phoned the task force's confidential hotline to tell them of his suspicions about Eiler being the killer. He talked about the stabbing incident in 1978 with a hitchhiker who we know was Craig Long and spoke about his strong preference towards bondage, violent temper, and gave them information on the two places that he was living. He also said that in May of 1982, Eiler had drugged a 14-year-old boy and then abandoned him unconscious in a rural area close to Greencastle, Indiana. The boy had not been sexually assaulted, so the investigator thought that maybe Eiler was just testing out the pills he wanted to use on future victims at this point. And if you remember, one of his first victims we spoke about was Craig Townsend in October yes. of 1982, so shortly after this time. And he had been a hitchhiker that was picked up by Eiler, drugged, horrifically beaten, and left in a rural area comatose. He had survived, but remember the police didn't have a chance to interview him? Uh, yes, I remember. So the police did a background check then on Eiler after hearing this message and found the attempted sexual assault of teenage hitchhiker Craig Long, whom he stabbed in the chest and left for dead. When they read in the report that Long had been handcuffed and his ankles bound, they realized that it matched the MO of the highway killer, who also bound his victim's wrists and ankles. And Eiler also traveled the routes where the bodies had been discovered due to his living situation and location of his jobs. Hmm, so they're putting it together. He definitely sounds like he was becoming a suspect at this point, but it just wasn't enough information to put him under official surveillance, but they did keep some type of informal track of his location. Okay. 
At this point, the FBI, at the request of the task force, had created a psychological profile for the highway killer. They stated that he was likely a white male in his late 20s or early 30s who worked in a menial profession and presented a rough exterior in part due to his self-hatred of his sexual attraction to other males. He would also project a macho image and seek the company and approval of other masculine males in order to feel a sense of belonging. The killer would also symbolically erase the act of murder by haphazardly covering his victims with dirt or leaves and likely had a middle-aged, middle-class, more intelligent accomplice in several of the initial murders. Mm. He would also be physically strong since many of the victims were also very tall and muscular. This part of the profile was definitely supported by the welts on the victim's wrists, which did suggest that many struggled or resisted being handcuffed and bound by the killer. So he was strong enough to hold down very muscular men. Sounds which like he was. Tyler was, exactly. Well, it sounds like they got him pretty on point. Those FBI profiles are pretty impressive. Yeah, they are. I'm curious about the accomplice statement yes, as well. Middle age, middle class, more intelligent. Kind of sounds like Professor Little. Yeah. So uh, I wonder if we'll hear more about him. We will. On July 2nd, an unidentified Hispanic man was found partially nude in a field in Illinois, having been stabbed repeatedly in the abdomen. August 31st, 28-year-old Ralph Calise was found in a field near Illinois Route 60. He had been stabbed 17 times with a large knife, many of the wounds being on his abdomen, causing his intestines to protrude. Oh. <laughs> There's several times where this happens. I feel bad. I know you hate hearing this. Uh, yeah. Well, 17 times is a lot of times to stab somebody. It's crazy to me. I just can't even imagine. Yeah. It's just the, the rage involved in that. I can't imagine it. And the, yeah, the aggression. Right. The location of Kalisa's body was close to that of Aaron Gibson and Gustavo Herrera. Both young men also found stabbed to death earlier in 1983. The police would later discover that Kalise and Herrera ran in the same circles. It's obvious that whoever this person is may be known by certain people in the community because two of the victims knew each other. Oh. So it could be a friend of a friend. Yeah, okay. So they're starting to piece things together. In September of 1983, Chicago reporter Kalarik noted that there were similarities between the murder of Kalise, Gibson, and Herrera. She also noted several similarities with two other murder victims in separate counties of Illinois and Indiana. Kalarik contacted the police and investigators in both states to discuss whether the bodies should be added to the highway killer's victim list. They agreed that they should be, and the victim count the task force had compiled was now at 17. Uh, 17 victims yeah. altogether already? Mm -hmm. And there is a great book out called Freed to Kill, which was written by the journalist I just mentioned who contacted the police, Geraldine Kalarik. And she is a crime journalist and author. And the book was written with another journalist, Wayne Klatt, who's an editor. It covers the crimes and the timeline of Eiler's arrests, court proceedings, and has amazing detail on each event and gives the perspectives of the prosecutors, the defense team, the judge, also of Eiler. Kalarik was actually the first to recognize the hunting pattern of Eiler. Oh, it is kind of like a hunting pattern. Yes. And the book goes into much more detail about the court proceedings than we will in this episode. So I would recommend the book for anyone who wants more information on Eiler and the police investigation. We will go into a lot of it, but the book goes into the legality and the court proceedings there's a lot. Yeah, you said that it goes really in-depth, and it, so it could have easily been a two-parter. A two- or three-parter, honestly. There's so much to it. But we're, we're going to... It's one. We're going to make it one. <laughs> <laughs> Let's try. On October 4th, two mushroom hunters discovered a human torso inside a plastic bag in Wisconsin. And you were you told me about mushroom hunters. I, just I didn't found, even know that was a, a I thing. I didn't know it was a thing. We got to add it to the list of good hobbies to have. <laughs> just go mushroom hunting. You may find a dead body, unfortunately, because they found one. I heard about mushroom hunters on a documentary. I didn't know it was a thing, but there's supposedly so many different types of mushrooms in the world that they need people to go out there and find the new ones. People like mushrooms, right? On pizza. You love them I, on pizza. I love yeah. them on pizza. So. Should we go mushroom hunting for pizza mushrooms? I, I would love pizza mushrooms. <laughs> I think you could just go buy those, though. I don't think you have to go hunt it's for them. It's probably easier. <laughs> yeah. You know, we may take up mushroom hunting at some point. 
They do look like little penises. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we won't take it up. (laughs) I don't think we should. If you need a hobby, it's out there for you. On October 4th, those two mushroom hunters discovered a human torso inside a plastic bag in Wisconsin. It was 18-year-old Eric Hansen. The head, arms, and legs had been severed from his torso with a hacksaw, and the torso had been drained of blood. The skull and hands were never found. He's just getting more and more brutal with the mutilation of the bodies. Yeah, now he's removing heads and, and like, any identifiers. Yes. October 18th, the bodies of four more victims were found by an oak tree that was close to an abandoned farmhouse in Lake Village, Indiana. The bodies were partially decomposed. Each body had only been slightly buried. All victims had been stabbed over 24 times, each with a blade estimated to be at least eight inches in length, and each victim's pants were pulled down around their ankles. So that matches the FBI profile, too, of him just kind of tossing a little bit of dirt, partially burying. And the pants. And the pants pulled down. Yep. December 7th, 17-year-old Richard Wayne, who went missing on March 20th, was discovered partially buried near Route 40 in Indiana. An unidentified black male was found partially decomposed beneath a burned-down mobile home near where they found Wayne's body. So that's two more bodies. This is within a span of three months. So And the same profile. Six bodies, yes. Same profile. And one unidentified. Oh, gosh. They're trying, right? Law enforcement's trying to find him, but Eiler's just got his method and it's working. Well, we'll get to this first arrest. In the early morning hours... his second arrest because he was arrested. Well, that's true. This is his first arrest, though, related to the murders. True. Okay. In the early morning hours of September 30th, 1983, in Lowell, Indiana, Eiler was arrested during a traffic violation stop. The police officer saw two men coming out of a ditch and approached the car and noticed a young hitchhiker was in the vehicle with the driver, who was Eiler. The hitchhiker and Eiler were separated, and the police officer asked if the driver had propositioned him. The hitchhiker said he just needed a ride. Nothing happened. Without advising Eiler that he was under arrest, the officer searched his car and found two pieces of nylon rope. Eiler and the young hitchhiker were both taken into custody on the charge of solicitation, and Eiler's Ford pickup truck was impounded. Around 1.30 p.m., two investigators of the task force came in to formally interview Eiler. They advised him of their suspicion that he was involved in the string of highway murders due to an anonymous phone call from a former acquaintance of his. Eiler was willing to discuss their suspicions and any other aspects of his life, but he refused to discuss his sexuality with the investigators. Hmm. That's kind of a red flag. Because of the FBI profile. They They noted that. I'm sure they did. He was questioned about the murders of McNeve and Roach. He only admitted to seeing articles in the paper about them, though. He then consented to their request to conduct a forensic examination of his vehicle to take his mugshot and fingerprints and also agreed to take a polygraph at a later date. The examination of his truck uncovered a knife, two sections of nylon rope, handcuffs, two baseball bats, a hammer, and surgical tape. Upon inspection of his boots and tires, the investigators found them to be an exact match to the plaster cast made at the scene where Kalise's body had been found, and the tire tracks were similar to the tracks found as well. Examination of the knife revealed blood underneath the handle. Furthermore, Greencastle, Terre Haute, and Chicago, where several of the victims were discovered, were areas that Eiler regularly commuted for jobs. So they found that murder kit and kind of put that together with those tire tracks. And the areas he lived in and commuted to for work and where he lived. Even just Eiler's lifestyle, his physical description matched. The FBI profile, his attitude towards his sexuality also matched that. It's all adding up. It is, yeah. After the examination of his vehicle was complete, Eiler was released, though. They didn't have enough evidence to charge. Right. right. October 1st, investigators of the task force obtained a search warrant for Robert Little's home in Terre Haute. October 2nd, they conducted the search and obtained more circumstantial evidence, like credit card receipts showing Eiler was in Illinois and Indiana on the dates victims of the highway killer were murdered. It was also found that phone records showed Eiler placing calls to Little's home at late hours of the night when the victims were believed to have been killed. One call was on April 8th, the date Herrera was murdered, and was placed from a payphone outside of a hospital in Cook County where the body was later discovered. 
Hospital records obtained by the police show Eiler had been treated for a deep cut to his hand on the date of the murder. Receipts from this time show that he also purchased a knife and handcuffs. One of the investigators said that if Eiler wasn't the killer, then he was following the actual killer on a daily basis. <laughs> well, I mean... What are the odds, uh, right? Yeah. <laughs> If your lifestyle mimics the serial killers. You're probably the serial killer. You're probably the serial killer. Or maybe you're Dexter. You could be, but no, he's not. He's fictional, so yeah. <laughs> you're probably the serial killer. Eiler's truck was impounded again on October 2nd, and he was brought in for further questioning. This time, he admitted to the love-hate relationship with John Dobrovolsky, and when one of the investigators told him that they knew he would get into fights with John and then pick someone else up and stab them because Eiler pretended it was John, Eiler visibly winced. So he showed some type of response when they said this. So they may have been close to how he was feeling. So maybe it actually was that he would take his aggression out on these young men and boys after fights with Dobrovolsky. So it was like confirmation. Yeah. Eiler was released from custody on October 4th and obtained counsel. And on October 11th, discovering that police had insufficient evidence to formally charge his client, his attorney filed a civil suit against the Lake County Sheriff's Office and and Indiana State Police. In the suit, he cited harassment of Eiler and his client's 14th Amendment rights had been violated, which prohibits the state from depriving any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And he also stated his civil rights had been violated by unreasonable search and seizure and sought a quarter of a million in damages against 11 named officers from Illinois and Indiana. Really? Yes. That's bold. <laughs> For a serial killer, it is. <laughs> yeah. Like knowing now that he was a serial killer. Right. That sure is. Kind of. What did he think was going to happen here? I'm going to prove my innocence. <laughs> I'm going to make some money off of this. Yeah, that's pretty. So putting yourself brazen. in that. Yeah, you put yourself in that. Yeah. So they're going to look into this even more. Wasn't there another serial killer that did something similar? Was it Baumeister that sued? I thought there was another one we covered where they sued because of their arrest. I feel like this has happened in another case. You know, I wouldn't doubt that this is Maybe not the first time. So now let's look at some of the evidence they obtained. So on October 6th, the boot and tire prints recovered from the murder scene of Ralph Calise were sent to the FBI's headquarters in D.C. for analysis. The FBI found that the boot prints were an exact match to Eilers, which included four distinct areas of wear and damage on the soles. Blood stains were found inside the boots to be type A positive. The FBI's analysis of the tire prints and Eilers' tires found that his tires were from two separate manufacturers and that the tracks recovered were also from those two same separate manufacturers. Additionally, the grip depth was identical to the prints recovered. So that's some pretty good evidence. Yeah, that's... Some solid evidence right there. You'd think. Hold on. The task force met on October 27th and determined that there was sufficient evidence now to charge Eiler with the murder of Ralph Calise. And on October 29th, the civil suit was heard. And as Eiler walked out of the courtroom, he was served with warrants authorizing the retrieval of his blood and hair samples. So they were ready. They're waiting for nice. him outside. Nice. I mean, hey, you know this person's got a court date. We've seen where people, <laughs> We've seen you know, that, yes. Let me go ahead and serve you with this. Sure thing. It later revealed Eiler was type O positive. Blood stains inside the boots were type A positive. Eiler was formally charged with Kalisa's murder later that day, and his bond was set at $1 million. Eiler's attorney allowed him to do several interviews with the media, pleading his innocence. Then on November 1st, a second search of Little's home was performed by the police. They were looking for the victim's missing shirts and wallets. They obtained over 221 items from the home, including nude photographs. However, none would be linked to any of the murder victims except for one item, a key that was later found to be the exact match to a key found beneath the body of Steve Agin. Later on, they would discover that the key was to an office where Eiler had worked in 1982. Oh, wow. So he had his office keys, he had a spare, and he left one under a body that he murdered, most likely. Wow. What are the odds? I guess out of that many crime scenes, you have to leave some kind you of evidence. You would think, yeah. yeah. On November 12th, Eiler's mother, Robert Little, and John Dobrovolsky obtained a new defense attorney for Eiler. Shippers changed the defense strategy of his predecessor, Dutowski, and would not allow his client to do any further interviews with the media. Probably a good idea. Would you know what he was like? Like, what is his demeanor was like in those interviews? 
It but did he seem like he was innocent uh, or? It's hard for me to tell, but I think he shouldn't have done the interviews. Okay. So it wasn't helping him. No, it, I don't think it was helping him. I think, it, I think it made it worse. Okay. In December of 1983, a very lengthy evidentiary hearing was held in Lake County in front of Judge William Block. Block's ruling held up the initial arrest for the traffic violation as legal. However, the detainment during which the evidence was collected by the Indiana police had been obtained without probable cause. With this, Eiler's detention had been illegal. Oh, dang. Yep. A hearing on the motion to suppress this evidence and to quash and nullify various warrants would would be heard in January of 1984. After four days of testimony on the motions, Judge Block ruled that the physical evidence recovered by Illinois investigators related to the Calise crime scene, so the boot prints and the tire tracks, would all be suppressed. And Judge what? Block reduced his bond to 10000 Oh, my God. Yeah. God. They go into this in the book in so much detail about how it affected his career later on. Like, he doesn't really move forward as a judge. There's oh, a the lot judge. of right. There's some backlash for that choice, that ruling. It was a bad one. Yeah. Because he goes on to murder more. So on February sixth, nineteen eighty four, Eiler was released from custody. Four weeks later, Eiler relocated to Chicago. Little paid for Eiler's apartment rent and furnished the apartment for him. Then on August nineteenth, nineteen eighty four, Eiler lured a sixteen year old boy named Daniel Bridges into his apartment. Bridges was the youngest of thirteen children and was neglected. He was a runaway and was known to have been involved in sex work since around the age of twelve. Bridges had known one of Eiler's previous victims, Irvin Gibson, and even mentioned that he was wary of Eiler to an NBC reporter who was working on a documentary at the time, which focused on child exploitation in America. That's a little strange. Isn't that crazy? And this was just two months before his murder. He's talking about Eiler and being wary of him. Oh my gosh. And he knew one of Eiler's victims. What are the odds? Yeah. Once inside Eiler's apartment, Bridges was bound to a chair with a clothesline. He was then beaten, tortured, and then stabbed to death. Eiler took Bridges' body into his bathroom and cut it into eight pieces. He drained each piece of blood and placed them in six separate plastic bags. What? What is what? Yeah. yeah. It's a total change of what he was doing He's before, getting, right? well, he, remember he started to decapitate and dismember? Oh, so this is just more of an escalation from that. Yes. On August 21st, 1984, a janitor saw Eiler dumping bags into a dumpster that was not to be used for tenants. When he asked Eiler what he was throwing in there, Eiler responded with, just getting rid of some shit from my apartment. This janitor told a co-worker about the bags and that janitor decided to take a look. Upon inspection of one of the bags, a severed human leg fell out oh, and he God. immediately contacted the police. Uh, talk about traumatized. Uh, yeah, he will testify at the trial. Recognizing Eiler's name, the officers were told to immediately arrest anyone in apartment 106 where Eiler resided. Eiler was found with Dobrovolsky in the apartment and both were arrested, but Dobrovolsky was released soon afterwards without being charged. A luminol test was performed in Eiler's apartment and revealed large quantities of blood had been recently cleaned from the bedroom, which also had been recently repainted. There were mm. extensive amounts of blood spatter on the floor, walls, and ceiling, traces of blood obtained from the mattress, the seat of a chair, a leather belt, a sofa in the bedroom, and beneath the floorboards of the doorway of of the bathroom were all a match to Daniel Bridges and indicated that he had been dragged into the bathroom prior to being dismembered. Inside Eiler's closet, they found Bridges' jeans and his t-shirt, both saturated with blood. There was also a leather vest in the hamper, which had blood stains and had recently been washed. In addition, they found a hacksaw, blades, and old. Those are those, um, those sharp blades that they use for poking holes in leather. It usually has a wooden handle. Oh, yes, yes. What? So he one of those in a utility room and receipts show that he had purchased several hacksaw blades recently. Aww. Fingerprints were also found on the interior and exterior of the bags used to discard Bridges' body and matched Eiler's fingerprints. Hmm. I mean, it's... the way he'll explain that away. Oh, really? Eiler was formally charged with Bridges' murder on August 22nd, 1984. He denied it and insisted the fingerprints must have been placed upon the bags as he moved them aside to place his own bags in the dumpster. 
but your fingerprints are inside the bag, dummy. Right. So you're opening up bags and you don't see that there's a dead body in there? Give me a that's break. A, that's a, like... That's a stretch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's something that's very noticeable. Mm-hmm. The autopsy of Bridge's body revealed the cause of death to be from multiple wounds inflicted by a knife and an O-like object. So having trouble pronouncing <laughs> words. An O-like instrument to the chest. The wounds had been inflicted with the owl prior to death. I'm trying to pronounce words, people. We're not laughing at the death. I know. It's, it's a struggle. <laughs> Depending on the edit, sometimes you may hear us laugh at inappropriate moments, but it's because we probably edited five minutes out of us trying to pronounce words. Yes, like simple words exactly. that we should know. Like owl. 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 I was like, there's an owl in this? <laughs> it's not an owl, it's an owl. owl. Yeah, that's, anyway. <laughs> the wounds with that instrument having been inflicted prior to his death. There were also several knife marks to his abdomen causing his intestines to protrude. Three knife wounds to the back were done with such force that Bridges' heart and left lung had been perforated. <sighs> This poor kid. I can't imagine how terrifying this is. I know. Brutal. And it doesn't stop. Eiler was brought to trial on July 1st, 1986 on the charges of aggravated kidnapping, unlawful restraint, and murder. His trial took place in Cook County, Illinois before Judge Joseph Urso. He pled not guilty. He was represented by two public defenders and shippers told the judge that he would also represent Eiler pro bono. Why? He believed in his client. I don't know. Why? (laughs) Who knows? I mean, we need good defense attorneys out there for the people that are innocent. Exactly. but, But when you read things about this for people like Eiler, yeah, it's yeah, like when you're a POS. Yes. So Eiler was advised not to testify on his own behalf by his counsel. Robert Little actually testified for the prosecution. He did state that he was with Eiler, but only from the 17th of August through the 19th. And they estimated the murder to be sometime late on the 19th or 20th. So he was saying he was only with him up until like the morning of the 19th. He was like, I wasn't there for it. I don't know. Bill Rivolsky testified that when he had asked Eiler if he could come visit him, Eiler told him it was not a good time because Little was still there. And this was on the 20th, a Monday. So this seems strange to Dobrovolsky since Little would always head back to Terre Haute early Sunday mornings. So Dobrovolsky's like, well, he said Little was still with him, but... Yeah. So who do we think that he's telling the truth? Well, when Dobrovolsky pressed Eiler about coming over, Eiler finally said, okay, I'll just come see you. But when he showed up to Dobrovolsky's place, he was tired, he had showered, and he was not interested in having sex, which led him to believe that he had been with another man. In reality, he had just killed a young boy. And that's why he was tired. Mm, yes, I can imagine that's tiring. Get hobbies. Yeah. A doctor testified to the extreme mutilation of the body and to cocaine and alcohol having been found in Bridges' system. This left some to believe that Bridges had willingly entered Eiler's apartment, which, again, if this kid is neglected and Eiler is trying to offer him drugs and alcohol, he knew how to lure people, these young boys and these men. I still think it is kidnapping, in my opinion. Yeah. But they tried to argue. Them, they, so. Yeah, he tried, they tried to argue that he wasn't kidnapped. I mean, when you're drugged, you don't have that knowledge to be able to, or you don't have, like, the wherewithal. Right. A doctor testified to the extreme mutilation of the body, and janitors testified to having seen Eiler making several trips from his apartment to the garbage bin. The jury deliberated for three hours before returning a verdict of guilty on aggravated kidnapping, unlawful restraint, concealment of a body, and the murder of Daniel Bridges. Eiler was sentenced to death by lethal injection for Daniel Bridges' murder. Okay. The computer just jumped at us. That's a little strange. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, that's, I mean, good. It is good. I don't know your stance on the death penalty, um, but... Actually, I don't... I used to think people like this, yes, they should just be taken out of this world so they can enjoy life and don't exist, and maybe that will help the family. But after reading that book, Just Mercy, there's so many that that were on death row. That were innocent. That were innocent. There's so much gray area, you know, because... It's tough. You don't know. Sounds like we do know that this guy was... Just awful and terrible human, garbage human. But the story's not over yet. Oh, my gosh. In May of 1988, Eiler filed an appeal stating that while he had dismembered Bridges' body and discarded of the remains, Little was the actual murderer. So he blamed it on Little. He blamed it on Little. But that appeal was later dismissed, and he keeps filing them. And on November 5th, 1990... 
attorney Kathleen Zellner was appointed to represent Eiler in his ongoing appeals. Then in November of 1990, evidence was obtained regarding the murder of Ralph Calise with the intention of bringing it to a grand jury to determine whether or not sufficient evidence existed to charge Eiler with the murder of Stephen Agin. Once Eiler found out that there was a pending indictment in Agin's murder, he confessed to the murder but stated that he only assisted in it and that little was involved. The confession would spare him the death penalty in the Agin murder and he received a sentence of 60 years. Eiler's attorney would offer a deal on his behalf in which he would testify to 20 further murders committed across 10 counties in exchange for life imprisonment to avoid his previous death sentence. So he wanted to kind of trade that out and say, well, if I tell you about 20 other murders I did, will you change my death sentence to just one of life imprisonment? And that worked for him? Nope. It was rejected ultimately. There were some of the counties who agreed to it. But not all were on board, and so it was rejected because they all had to be on board. Did they still find out about the other 20 murders? You'll see. April 11th, 1991, Robert Little was brought to trial before Judge Don Darnell and entered a plea of not guilty. Eiler testified against Little at trial and claimed they had both committed the murder of Agin in December of 1982. Eiler testified that they had picked up Agin in Little's car and offered him money to participate in a bondage and photography session. I mean, that's not really against the law. That's not, no. Murder is, though. Yes. They drove to an abandoned shed close to State Road 60. Agin's hands were tied above a beam in the shed before he was gagged and bound. According to Eiler, Little told him to get out the knife. Eiler also testified that Little masturbated while photographing him stabbing Agin and that Little had also stabbed Agin. Defense attorney for Little claimed that Eiler was just seeking revenge on Little for testifying against him at Eiler's trial for the murder of Bridges. When asked why no photos of the murder had been found when the police searched Little's place, Eiler stated that the photos had been kept inside Little's closet closet in the bedroom, which had not been searched. And after the first search, he got rid of them. Oh, so there was there's no photographs then? No. Eiler says that's why there's no photographs. Hmm. Little's mother testified that he had been with her for Christmas in Florida. However, her testimony was discredited when evidence was provided showing Little's vehicle was brought into a repair shop on December 21st in Terre Haute. There was also a call made from his home on the same day. So do we think he is participating in these murders? I mean, it would kind of sound like it. If I was a juror, it depends on the evidence. It kind of sounds like it. It kind of sounds like it. But then do you believe Eiler? That's the only thing. Yeah, because he's so quick to oh yeah, and he's he pinned it on him, right? And he it could be this revenge thing. He's mad that he testified against him, right? So that's we tough. know how angry he gets. Yeah, so, so he just could be trying to bring him down. Gosh, this yeah. is like a f you to my ex lover who didn't stick up for me in trial. This is very much a snapped episode. <laughs> it is. On April 17th, after a seven hour deliberation, the jury found Little not guilty of all charges. Little returned to his position at Indiana State University. So he was not guilty, found not guilty, and went back to living his best life. I guess, I mean, we just don't know. We just don't know. Right. Like, would you believe Eiler? I don't know. It's like, is that credible testimony? Right. That's really tough. It's hard to say. Yeah, it's it's really tough. So he was found innocent. Then on March 6, 1994, while on death row, Eiler died from AIDS-related complications. Mm. Shortly before his death, Eiler confessed to his defense attorney, Kathleen Zellner, to killing 20 other young men and teenage boys. Mm. He actually denied being physically responsible for the actual murder of Daniel Bridges, insisting still that it had been committed by this unnamed accomplice who was also responsible for the killings in four of his other murders. With the consent her client had given her prior to his death, attorney Zellner delivered Eiler's confession posthumously. Wow. So That's he, a lot to unpack. It's a lot. Yeah. I'm, he's dead. He's gone. Good riddance. I think that he did. I mean, he confessed to he confessed 20 to mur- plus oh, murders. Yeah. So. And I think he could have killed more. It's insane to think about. He just brutally tortured these young boys and men. Do they ever talk about if he's remorseful? He doesn't show any remorse. No. Piece of garbage human. Yeah, he is. What do you think about an accomplice? I don't know. I, I mean, it's possible. One. It's it's possible. I don't know who. Right. I don't think it was little necessarily. I think he just wanted to take little to trial as a, like a revenge thing. But I think he had an accomplice. I don't think it maybe, was Jobowski, maybe though, not for. I don't think for all of them no. he had an accomplice because it seemed like he could just 
pick up a hitchhiker, stab him. But for four of them, he said he did. And at this point, he knows he's dying and he wants to give this confession. Why would he lie about four of them? It just... I guess so. Or or five total. Like he said, in five of them, he had an accomplice. And this is an unnamed accomplice that we would not even know. We don't know who this person is. And nothing else has happened after this. So the interstate killing stopped after he was apprehended. So then the accomplice could have been someone similar to Little in stature and, you know, could have been somebody who wouldn't be able to do it by themselves themselves, but obviously with the help of Eiler, who was stronger, yeah. they could. But without Eiler, they can't commit anymore. So maybe that just... Or maybe he was just along for the ride with Eiler. Like, you know, kind of, you know, put a pin in that one. Yeah. Maybe there'll be a deathbed confession by somebody that says, Possibly. I was Eiler's accomplice. We'll stay tuned for that. <laughs> <laughs> but there's Larry Eiler. Had to get that one out of the way since it was very related. That was a lot. Much more brutal than Herb's. Mm-hmm. Herb was more sexually motivated, and it seems like Eiler was more rage-filled. Yep. Do you think he was born a serial killer? No, just from his horrible childhood. I think he was created. Yeah, I mean, I don't think he... It's sad. He didn't have any positive influences. I mean, he had his mom and his sister, but, you know, they didn't know what was going on with him. Like Again, it doesn't give him any right to do what he did, but I think there are people that are definitely more susceptible and serial killers can definitely be created. He is one for sure, I think. Yeah, if he had grown up in a nice home, maybe things would have been different. He still could have been just a douchebag of a guy. We don't know. Yeah. Kind of like the whole Michael Madison situation. Like he had a right. horrible childhood and he took out all of his rage on women. And this one, it was different. He took his rage out on men. And maybe that has something to do with his stepdads too. But it's just an awful, awful case. It is. And our next case doesn't get any better. (laughs) So get ready. (laughs) What is our next one? We're covering Futoshi Matsunaga. And that'll be our New Year's Day episode, right? New Year's Day. Yes. We will have a bonus episode before that, though. What's our bonus episode on, Jennifer? It's called (laughs) our coffee break. So we're breaking from coffee and having Bloody Maria's? We could do Bloody Maria's, yeah. Margaritas. One or the other. I mean, either either one, both. They'll have tequila. (laughs) Yeah. It's fine. It'll be a light, fun one to maybe break up the the seriousness. For one episode. (laughs) For one episode, yes, but it'll be a fun one. It's a different take. We'll see what you guys think about it. Yeah, it's kind of like our year wrapped up. Yes. We're having fun with it. I'm excited. So until next time, stay caffeinated. Get hobbies. And don't murder people. And rate us on iTunes five stars. Oh, yes. And happy 20th episode to us. Yay! Yay! Okay, bye.